Welcome back everyone to the Smarter Brain Now show right here with AE Mind. My name is Louis Angel and I have the amazing pleasure of having a distinguished guest here with us. We are going to go over a new study, a new research paper that was just published a few weeks ago titled Obesity is Associated with Reduced Plasticity of the Human Motor Cortex. And one of the contributing authors to this, uh, this study in this paper is Dr. Brenton Hortick. Horaker, <laughs> try to get the name right. Horaker um, is a National Health and Medical Research Council fellow at the University of South Australia. He leads the plasticity theme. I'm trying to get these words right. <laughs> with um, Eye Impact and is a registered physiotherapist. His research is focused on understanding and improving stroke recovery. And he, ha he has expertise in non-invasive brain stimulation and neuroimaging to help understand and investigate brain function. Dr. Horaker has published over 40 peer-reviewed scientific papers. It's interesting because when I was doing my research on your bio, it said 20. So you've already doubled that since the time yeah. I was uh, writing this, um, this bio. So thank you so much once again, doctor, for coming on. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show with us. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. So let's jump right into the article um, and, and, and the paper. So what was, first of all, what led you and the other researchers to want to um, study this, study obesity and its relation to neuroplasticity and possibly, you know, memory issues, possibly leading to dementia if we have, uh, you know, obesity. Um, so what led you to want to look into this? Yeah, so I came from um, a research group that was really interested in neurophysiology and brain plasticity. So brain plasticity um, as a very general description is about changing the structure or the function of the brain. And if we change the structure or the function of the brain, it changes our behavior or it changes our memory. Now it can be positive or negative, of course. So you can have plasticity that is good for human behavior and plasticity that is bad for human behavior. Um, and our, our group was really interested in what factors enable or perhaps don't support neuroplasticity. So things, so the obesity study, for example, is something that might inhibit neuroplasticity. But we've certainly looked at other things such as age changes, what happens after stroke, uh, what happens, um, you know, with different types of stimulation as well. So what we can do to enable um, the brain to have a greater capacity to change and to learn. Um, and we're really interested in that. Um, as you said in the introduction, I'm a physiotherapist and I'm quite interested in stroke recovery. So I've worked um, in our public hospital system here with um, stroke patients and um, it's it's a slow recovery process for them. You know, when you have a stroke, that's a major um, attack on the brain. It dramatically reduces their capacity to walk or talk or use their arms. So it's a long recovery process for them. So if we can identify ways to... Um, we would call them adjuvant therapies. There's something that can supplement what we do as a physiotherapist mm -hmm. to perhaps um, engage that plasticity process to a greater extent and then lead to a bigger recovery or a faster recovery. Now, with the obesity study, we're, we're really coming at it from a different angle in that does obesity inhibit the neuroplasticity response was the question. And, of course, the, the, the other side to that coin is well, what happens if we had... Um, you know, weight loss programs or encouraging people to have a healthy weight. And of course that would then uh, facilitate the neuroplasticity response to help them recover. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was the idea behind it. It was a, it was actually an honors student project. So honors is um, in Australia, that's uh, after you've done your undergraduate degree. So the, the particular student, I think did a 
Bachelor of Health Science, and then in her fourth year started to do a, an honours um, program um, and was quite interested in, yeah, obviously brain function and, and what we can do to help with that. Okay. And so then what was the actual process with the, with the study? So I was seeing that, it, I mean, you, I was seeing some YouTube videos of, of your work, um, how you use some of these transcranial imaging systems and mag magnetic systems, if I'm correct with that. Uh, and you kind of place it over someone's head. What exactly is happening? Are you just stimulating the neurons? Um, what exactly is happening when you, when you guys use that? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to do this. With this particular study, we use something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm -hmm. So much like the alternator in a car, it's an alternating magnetic field that creates an electric field uh, at a perpendicular angle. So when we hold the coil on the surface of the head, um, so if you, uh, for example, if on the edge of my head there, mm -hmm. there's a magnetic field that's alternating, that's rapidly changing, that's generated. And then perpendicular to that, so coming penetrating into the scalp, is a electric field and that activates the neurons underneath the coil is that so when, coming from the device itself or yeah from, yeah. from the device so from the, the device itself creates the magnetic field or the magnetic discharge okay. but then laws of physics and don't ask me to explain <laughs> that um create an electric field perpendicular to that oh, okay. um, it's, a, it's a electromagnetic induction is is basically um the concept that that's using and the, the benefit of that actually is that you don't get any of the sort of tingling or pins and needles or, you know, that electric sort of stimulation that you can get as it passes through the, the skin on the skull or yeah. the scalp. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't, you don't feel that. What you feel is just like a, a, a tap on the surface of your head. Interesting. Um, and then if you're, if you're over the correct spot for the motor area of the brain, someone might have a twitch in a, in a muscle of the arm. So for example, if we're over that, like we typically look at a, a hand muscle or a finger muscle, and you might actually just see like the finger twitch a little bit as each discharge happens. I was kind of, I was reading through the study a little bit. Is that what you guys were were going over? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we use that. So that what that tells you when you, so when it discharges, we actually record from the the hand muscle. Mm -hmm. So we place some electrodes on the surface of the skin, and we get the you know an evoked response. And we can measure the size of that. So we're looking at the amplitude from peak to peak. Okay. Well, that tells you about how excitable that pathway is. So up in the brain, how excitable are those neurons? How, how strong are the connections between different neurons in that motor part of the brain? And then obviously the signal then um, discharges down through the spinal cord out to a peripheral hand muscle when we, we record that. What we then do, so that's our baseline measure of excitability in the brain. Then we can use a, a pattern form. So people found that when you applied repeated pulses, at certain frequencies and intensities, you can actually change the excitability of the motor cortex. So, and, and of any part of the brain where we were looking at the motor cortex. So in this study, we used a protocol that actually suppresses activity and it changes what's called the synapses. So how efficient those synapses are. So that's the connection from one neuron to the next. So if you change how efficient those synapses are, it's gonna decrease the size of the response or the twitch that we get in the hand muscle, or it should do anyway. Hmm. So we did that. So we did, it's called continuous data burst stimulation. So it's just a short, um, really high frequency burst of pulses um, and it decreases the excitability. And we know that it is a, a plasticity mechanism because when they give drugs that block um, neuroplasticity and that's uh, drugs that are linked to NMDA and um, GABA, for example, it, it actually reduces the effects or it's like completely abolishes the effect of the stimulation. So the stimulation is some sort of mechanism related to synaptic plasticity. Okay. 
So we, so we do our baseline measure of excitability, just when we get the finger twitching, then this really high burst of pulses to change the activity or to change the synapses and how efficient they're working. And then we re-measure um, the excitability again afterwards. So what we would assume in a healthy, normal way adult is that when we do our baseline measure, we might get a nice big twitch in the hand muscle. Then we try and suppress the brain activity and we re-measure it and the twitch is smaller afterwards. And you suppress it by giving them one of these drugs? Yeah. No, by the really high frequency stimulation. By, okay, so, okay. Yeah, so the drug bit was just to sort of confirm that what this is is actually neuroplasticity that we're measuring in the brain. Okay. It's based on a mechanism of neuroplasticity. So in this study, we didn't use the drugs because it's been done previously. We're really confident that it is a measure of neuroplasticity. Gotcha. Um, so what happened was, um, so certainly in the healthier weight people, we saw that, that after they do this high burst of stimulation that changes the brain activity, they did get a smaller twitch in the hand muscle afterwards. Mm. So it did, it did suppress as we you know, intended um, their brain activity. But those people that were obese, so when we said obese, it was a BMI category greater than 30. Okay. So BMI is based on height um, and weight as well. So Yep, you're okay with that one. And yeah, um, yeah but I well, the, the thing I have, I, I know there's a a lot of individuals that view B, the BMI index to um, determine whether someone is obese, clinically obese or not, um, yeah. it, because it, we're not talking about like bodybuilders that have a high BMI index of someone that's like really fit because they can also be categorically. Um, put into that obese category if they weigh say 190 pounds or five six hundred ninety such as say like a joe rogan they are considered quote-unquote obese but they're not he is like one of the most fit individuals we're not talking about that group of individuals when it comes to the study right no no um i've you know i've had that trouble myself where <laughs> too much muscle of course but um no so with this particular study that i mean that is a very valid point we wanted a way to group participants. So the BMI categories are nice. So we, you, know, you get a healthy weight and we've got an obese group. Mm -hmm. we, but we were concerned, like you say, that we might, because we were recruiting university students, that we might happen to come across someone who's obese, but what it actually is is that they're quite muscly or there's other reasons behind right. it. So we measured other things like hip-to-waist ratio and body fat percentage as well. Okay. So when we looked at those, they were definitely higher in the obese group. So we we're pretty confident that the people that we got were genuinely obese because of body fat reasons, not because of muscle reasons. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're certainly talking about um, obesity in terms of body fat in this study. Yeah. So what we saw you know, with those people that were in the obese group is that the, the change that we got by stimulating the brain wasn't there at all. Hmm. In fact, it was completely gone. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we did look at a few other things. Um, and I'm not sure if you can ask about these, but I'll, I can tell you about them anyway. Go ahead. Um, so, you know, an obvious question to me would have been, are they obese because they're not doing physical activity? And we know that physical activity changes brain function and is good for brain health. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we did look at, we used a measure called um, the International Physical Activity Questionnaire, which is, it's asking the participant to recall the physical activities they've done over the past seven days. Mm -hmm. So we can get a bit of an idea of how active they are as a person, because like you said, you can be categorized as obese, but you're actually physically quite fit. Right. Um, so we wanted to get an idea to, you know, to the people that are in the obese group, are they doing less physical activity? And then that might be causing the change in neuroplasticity. So maybe it's not, um, maybe there's a, a moderating factor there being physical activity mm -hmm. that's, 
causing them to you know put on excess weight but also change their brain function um it was it was a smaller study in that it was about i think 30 participants in total yeah but what we did find was that there wasn't any difference in the physical activity between the two groups hmm. these are younger adults keep in mind i, I can't remember the I can tell you the ages here so um i think the mean age is about 30 okay. so relatively you know younger people so they physically they were doing similar amounts of activity right. so it probably wasn't related to how much physical activity they were doing mm -hmm. the second question we thought was is it related to sleep quality and the reason we said sleep quality is that people who are obese can suffer from something called obstructive sleep apnea which is kind of where they you know like really heavy snoring but they're actually not sleeping deeply and they can wake up a lot mm -hmm. and sleep's again another factor that's important for brain health yeah. So we used for that a Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which is, again, a, a reported measure of sleep quality. And again, no difference between the two groups, okay. which is um, is kind of pleasing. We wouldn't expect to see someone with obstructive sleep apnea at the age of 30, right. but um, you, you never know. Um, so what, it didn't appear to be those two things, but probably what I would say is that even though statistically the groups might be similar, you know, it still could be individual differences or slight variations that add up. And it might be, a, you know, not just one thing, like not just physical activity that's causing the difference or not just sleep quality, but a combination of those plus a few other things as well. Did any of the individuals that were in the obese category have uh, type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so we didn't measure that. So being a, a what we call an honours project here, it's, um, it's completed in about a nine-month period. So... Um, to give you an idea, the experimental procedure is about two hours per person, and there was 30 participants, and then there's about two hours of data analysis afterwards. So it's quite a lot of work for the honours student. It would have been nice to get a measure of type 2 diabetes because changes in um, glycemia, lipids, etc., can certainly influence brain function. Um, so in the discussion of the paper, we did flag that future studies really need to consider uh, having some sort of measure of type 2 diabetes in there as well. Gotcha. Okay. So what was the overall conclusion of this? Is there still more work needed to be done with this? Is it like a first step of, of understanding that there could be a, a link between someone that's actually obese, um, yeah. a higher body fat percentage, and, you know, the neuroplasticity aspect of, of what you guys were looking for. Is, is more work needed to be done to really um, find out what the actual link is? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, probably the question is, so what? So what? what is neuroplasticity important for? And, it, yeah. you know, we're interested in this because neuroplasticity is important for human behaviour. We, You know, for example, if you learn a new skill, playing a piano, mm -hmm. riding a skateboard, I'm trying to ride a skateboard, not very well at the moment. Go <laughs> um, talk a to a 13-year-old down the street, he'll teach you. How uh, to do it. <laughs> so, so neuroplasticity is actually, um, you know, stronger in younger people so i'm not mm. surprised that a kid who's 13 can learn better than me who's getting a bit older than that um so so yeah all those skills that we learn in life are neuroplastic changes so neuroplasticity is a capacity or an ability that's available to humans throughout life now it does change throughout life and i mentioned by age so young kids when they're you know first learning to walk speak neuroplasticity is really peaking after stroke, it seems to peak as well. So when an injury happens, there's changes that happen to neuroplasticity. But the capacity for neuroplasticity is really important throughout life. Now, if we're inhibiting that by being obese, that's a bit of an issue because we do have an obesity epidemic throughout the world. So one um, 
you know, and, and you kind of mentioned before about some of those sort of cognitive and, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, for example, as well. Yeah. So we don't know about those links, but that it's, that's why it's important to understand the link between obesity and plasticity. What we don't know at this stage is the mechanism. So you mentioned about diabetes. Other things that could be is um, obesity causes central or inflammation, like peripheral inflammation plus central, so in the brain inflammation. And we know that that inflammation does inhibit brain function. And a really interesting study was that in rats, they um, transplanted fat, like body fat into a rat. Mm. And it actually changed the, the rat's synaptic plasticity, which is what we measured here. Oh, wow. So something they didn't plant, implant it into the brain, they implanted it into the body of the rat, huh. but it changed the, the rat's brain function. So it does, again, help us with that idea that there is a, a relationship between um, body fat and plasticity, in, certainly in a rat, and we've kind of started to see it in humans. The other thing is there's a, another mechanism called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So something in the brain that helps support brain function. And again, the, the expression and the signaling of that seems to be reduced in obesity. Now, it might be linked to that rat study as well that I mentioned. Yeah, because I was... Um... Dr. Majid Fotuhi, I believe, he's out here in California. Uh, I compete in memory competitions and he was at a USA memory championship a few years ago. And he was talking about a, a rat study where they were measuring the brain derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, in rats that were uh, exercising. So they had, you know, same exact diets, but they had one or one set of group of rats on the little wheel, the spinning wheel to, you know, and they had them exercising regularly and another one just not doing anything really. Um, and even the ones that were using the wheel, even modestly, saw an increase in BDNF, you know, exercise. Yeah. We, you, you were talking about earlier how you, we just asked these, uh, you know, the volunteers whether or not, uh, um, you know, or their exercise routine. And we didn't see really a correlation between the two groups that we're measuring. Um, but in your opinion, do you think that exercise does play a role in 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 something like this in, in obesity and you know, eventually not being able to, to, to have neurogenesis happen in our brain as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, we had this conversation in my office yesterday. Hmm. Uh, I think exercise. So, so part of the research group we're in, involved in is in chronic pain and exercise is a really big thing to help get over chronic pain, yeah. but it's important for neuroplasticity and brain changes as well. And we've, we're actually running a study right now on people with stroke and looking at doing an exercise intervention and measuring the brain changes that we get. Of course, it's always hard to get someone to do exercise, particularly stroke patients who are fatigued and might have other cardiovascular issues. But I think there is actually a very strong link between physical activity that we do. Now, for some people, that might be just doing some light to moderate physical activity if they're doing nothing. I don't think, you know, I'm not sure of the, the link between um, the levels of physical activity and the amount of brain change. I'm not sure if there's a direct correlation there. Um, I know from some collaborators at the University of British Columbia that they've um, certainly shown a study before using high-intensity interval training improved brain function as well in humans. So I think absolutely, I think exercise is going to be there. And I think even though we didn't see a, a, a correlation, like you say, between the two groups that we would expect that the obese people probably did, they probably are doing some less physical activity than the ones that are a healthy weight. I suspect we didn't see that because it's a self-reported measure. It's not, you know, it's not an activity watch where we weren't documenting um, an ob what we would call an objective measure. So something that they were relying on their ability to recall information. So that's not necessarily the most reliable method. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we also only measured it over the previous seven days. Now that might give us a bit of an idea um, as to what physical activity is like, but it's not going to be perfect. Okay. Um, but there is definitely um, good evidence to link more physical activity and better brain health. And what about on the diet aspect of things? I was talking with, I interviewed Dr. David Perlmutter, who's a neuroscientist, and he wrote the book, uh, Grain Brain, I believe it's, yeah, Grain, Grain Brain. So he was essentially linking a higher level of sugar intake, and that can be not just from sodas, candy, things like that, but also car carbohydrates, um, carbo yeah, carbohydrates or carbs. Yeah. Uh, having an increased level of carbs in our body um, compared to healthier fats and healthier proteins, and that can lead to type 2 diabetes and potentially even dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, and we all know that sugar or having an abundance of sugar in our blood can also lead to inflammation. So can, I, I'm not saying for you to recommend any type of diet or dietary changes, but what are, what's your opinion when it comes to sugar, obesity, and possibly, uh, you know, relating that to the brain in some capacity? Yeah. Um, look, we, we haven't investigated it. So it's just going off studies that I know of. There are certainly diets or dietary changes that you can make that influence brain behavior. Now there's a very, there is actually a very strong link between cardiovascular health and brain health. And that's because the blood obviously gets pumped into the brain. Um, and the brain of course uses quite a lot of energy that comes through the nutrients in the blood. So I can't remember the exact statistics, but the brain weighs something like less than 10% of our body weight. Obviously it's, you know, it's relatively small in terms of overall body weight, but it uses a, an incredible amount of energy. So it's, it, I think it's around 70% or something of the energy that comes through in the blood supply to the brain. So it makes sense that what you're putting into your body is going to affect your brain health as well as your cardiovascular health as well. Mm. So I would assume absolutely that high sugar diets, high car carbohydrate diets um, are going to change some of that nutrients that the brain receives that then impacts um, how well the brain can function. Now, th there is a little bit of evidence as well around... Um, with inflammation, so you mentioned about inflammation with dietary changes as well, it seems to accelerate what we call aging changes in the brain. So aging changes are, you get, if you've seen an MRI scan and you look at a really old person versus say a, a 20 year old, the old person might have these little sort of white plaques or dots on the brain. And that's a change in brain structure that's not beneficial. It's it's sort of, you could look at it as though it's brain tissue that's not functioning correctly anymore. It might've even sort of died. Um, and it's, you know, high inflammation diets seem to accelerate that. And we see that with diabetes as well. Huh. So absolutely, it, it you know, it, it does change brain structure with these plaques that seem to form. But of course, that's going to change function as well of the brain. Hmm. Interesting. I saw um, the concussion movie that Will Smith put out. Um, how, right. you know, they were trying to see the link, if there was a link with that, with the NFL players and getting hit in the head so often and whether or not they can have brain issues. And um, they saw like a lot of these little plaques just forming, you know, in the brain and that yeah. that just led to whether it's suicide, you know, people, this perfectly normal individual just a few years ago that had no brain issues, no, you know, mental health issues. And then out of nowhere, just gradually hit, got hit with the depression, you know, was um, getting overdose on drugs and, and ended up committing suicide, like just NFL player after NFL player after NFL player. Um, and, you know, that concussions can can probably help accelerate with that. And it's actually been proven. Um, yeah. And like you're saying now, inflammation, I didn't I didn't know about that one. Inflammation can also lead to having these plaques in your brain. 
Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that movie. I'll have to have a look. Um, but I'm not surprised because what happens with concussion is it's like micro-trauma to the brain. Mm -hmm. So it does, again, these plaques, these little damages that happen in the brain. And a repeated concussion is probably worse, of course, as well. You just get more and more of those. Mm -hmm. And as the brain structure changes, that's going to change things like chemical balance within the brain. So that's our brain function. Mm -hmm. And chemi chemical imbalance is linked to, you know, psychiatric conditions such as depression as well. Interesting. Um, so one thing that I noticed, I'm pretty sure it was this study. I've been reading so, so much. Uh, but uh, this study, you guys did mention how uh, obese people do have a smaller brain. Is that is that accurate? Um, or not, no, not necessarily a smaller brain, but I think it's something about it weight less. Yeah, there is. So I think in the introduction, we mentioned something about the cortex can be a bit thinner. Yeah. So the cortex is, um, so the outer layer of the cortex is really where the the magnetic stimulation's getting it. The pulse doesn't penetrate really deeply into the deep structures of the brain. It's just sort of that outer superficial layer of the cortex, mm. the, the brain. Um, and there is some evidence, I think, that, yeah, well, we said it in the paper, that people who are obese have a thinner cortex. A thinner cortex is, as you say, less brain. So you have less brain, you have less neurons. Oh, wow. So, of course, that's going to change your capacity for learning, plasticity, and those sort of things, and memory as well. So I'm not sure of the link there because we haven't investigated it. It was sort of a, a statement where we placed an introduction to say, hey, look, there's something happening in the brain. We need to investigate functionally how that's being affected, um, which is what we then did in our study. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, this is this is amazing. I, I love learning. I love learning how I can improve my you know, my body, my mind, my brain, and also help out others. And that's what everybody here on the show is is interested in learning as well. So, you know, I, I just thank you so much for, for getting on the call. But I, I do have just maybe one or two more follow-ups or not, not necessarily follow-up questions to that study, but just in regards to your own work. Um, so you work a lot with the transcranial magnetic, <laughs> I try to get the name right, um, uh, you know, systems. And so what do you see that is beneficial with that um, when it comes to helping out your patients with or you know the people that you see that have stroke or other you know brain impairments yeah so we we can obviously use it as a bit of a treatment because we can change i mentioned we can change brain function mm -hmm. so we can increase or decrease excitability and activity in the brain um so with stroke you get a suppression but on the stroke side of the brain the brain activity reduces so the idea behind it we we tend to try and increase brain activity on that side using stimulation we did do, uh, amazingly, we did a study last year, which I haven't published yet, but I think you'd be quite interested in. And we looked at giving people some stimulators actually took home. So we, in Australia, we're quite spread out. You know, we have a lot of what we call rural patients. So people that live are far away from our major metropolitan cities, it's hard for them to get rehab. So looking at ways that we can deliver this sort of technology within their own home is quite um, interesting to them. So using things like Zoom and Skype, like we are now, um, we, we kept in contact with them and they did the brain stimulation at home. Now it was a randomized trial. So some people had the real stimulation and some had the placebo one. Um, and what we found certainly is that those that had the real stimulation. How, made, how does that work? <laughs> do you just give them a, uh, send them a machine that just doesn't do anything? Yeah. So it's programmed. So it's programmed so that they, they don't realize, um, what, what they're actually getting. Um, but they don't have to hold it on their head. There's like a bandage that holds the electrode in on their head. Uh. So yeah, they had, one of the requirements was they have to have a family friend or a, a carer that could help place it because having a stroke, obviously one of your arms probably isn't working too well. Mm -hmm. um, so it is hard to put it on your head without two good functioning arms. So having a, a family member there to help you was, 
requirement for the study. Okay. So, and then there was another study that we ran last year looking at post-stroke depression. And it was a very small study, but I was just amazed that brain stimulation could actually improve depression. And that's probably where the best evidence is in depression, in depression for brain stimulation. And it was actually that study where people said to me afterwards, this is great. I've done two weeks of your study. They didn't know at this stage whether they've had the real stimulation or not. And they said, but what now? Like my depression's gone. I'm feeling great about life what's going to happen when it comes back. Cause I did like, we did say, look, two week treatment, it might, you know, might improve for a month or so, but we don't know anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. So we actually got funding to purchase some equipment um, to set up basically a, a clinic that we can offer to our community here. Mm. That is, it's not used for research. It's used for a, a translation of our research findings to the community. Now being a university and, you know, having health students come through, they can help us run that program as well. And, that reduces our costs yeah. um, and they get ex the students then obviously get exposed to new technologies and new ways to treat people. And these are brain targeting interventions. So the, the imbalance is in the brain with depression or with stroke or whatever it is. And we're using interventions that target the brain to treat that. So it's, yeah. it's a really cool way for them to learn more about the brain and how it functions and how we can target that with different things like brain stimulation. Now, so, yeah, were, yeah, they, were they taking any medication as well while using the brain stimulation device? Yeah, so with, with that study being a research um, component, we actually got them to not change medication doses for six months prior to the study and then also while the study was continuing. Okay. So we wanted to have a really stable platform. Now, some people were on antidepressants, but we know that the dosage never changed during like six months before the study and then across the, the study period. Gotcha. And at least then we know that the only thing that's changed for them is the, well, the, the most likely thing that's changed is the addition of brain stimulation as a treatment. How do you and guys, yeah, how, how do really, you, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> how do you yeah. guys target it? Like, do you guys just know already what part of the brain you need to use the yeah. stimulation on uh, for their type of depression or their type of mental health issues? Great question. So with motor areas, so stroke, if we're looking at arm function after stroke, it's really easy because you place, we know roughly where the motor cortex is. And it's kind of, if you go from the, the sort of the inner bit of the ear straight up to about two thirds of the way up to the top of your head, it's that's about your hand motor cortex. Huh. So what we do is we place the, the TMS coil on there, give it sufficient intensity, and we'll start to see the finger twitching. So we're stimulating the motor cortex. We get a visual response. Yeah. We can move around a little bit and make sure we're getting the best spot so we're getting it exactly where we need to get it but with depression it's different because we're not looking at a evoked response in terms of a finger twitch mm -hmm. but what we know from previous studies and this probably comes more from the, the imaging side of things where they can measure brain changes and activity changes um, in MRI scanners we know that it's a frontal part of the brain so everyone targets the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex so it's again the frontal it's certainly further forward on the brain hmm. we can there's different ways you can find that in terms of on each person because we can't just guess it yeah. you have to have a pretty good idea so we can actually measure it in terms of um there's an international sort of positioning system for each person's head that we can we can basically measure and it's kind of um if you see an eg cap you know it's got all the different electrodes yeah on the cap so they, they, they're, that's based on the international coordinate system. Gotcha. So we can use that information to guide it. And it's the F3 electrode is the dors left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. The more accurate way though, of course, is for everyone to have an MRI scan. And then we use a piece of technology that we upload their MRI scan into. 
the coil that we place on their head has some little tracking markers on it. And there's a camera in the system that tracks where the coil is in space and also where the person's head is, is, is in space. Hmm. And you can actually see, you can, you can place a target on the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for depression. And then you can move the coil watching on the screen and know exactly when you're sitting over the top of that part of the brain. Now that's a bit more expensive. It requires equipment and everyone to have an MRI scan, but that's the most accurate way of doing it. Hmm. Okay. So then like for all these individuals, did they all have it in the exact same place? Yes. Yeah. So we, for this study, again, research, we try and, you know, homogenize everything and, and just change one little variable. Right. Um, so in this study, everybody got what we call a left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, high frequency, repetitive TMS. So the high, the FDA approved protocol is a 10 Hertz stimulation, so 10 pulses per second. And it delivers, I think 3000 pulses is what they recommend. So it's about a 37 minute treatment period. Hmm. Okay. And you do that for repeated sessions per day. You do that so 37 minutes per day. And that's what we used in this study. We used the recommended FDA approved protocol for treating depression. Um, so you can, there are different protocols. So there's some, that's about increasing brain activity in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, but the converse or the other side of that is you can actually suppress. So there is hyperactivity in the right prefrontal cortex. So you can look at suppressing that as well. Um, but I'm not sure that the evidence is as strong for that. And it's not the FDA approved protocol either. What do you think is happening? Is it that by stimulating the brain now we are seeing an increase in like serotonin? Is it more of a chemical um, like imbalance issue or like, is it just that the neurons are firing off more? Like what, what is happening that is making people less depressed when they're using these brain stimulation uh, systems? Great question. It's, it's a little bit outside of my area because I'm mostly in stroke recovery, but mm. what we would say for stroke recovery is that it's um, the stimulation we know induces synaptic changes in the cortex. Now that increases neural activity. So it increases the efficiency of the synapses. So it can, in, can increase how active the brain is, I suppose, if you want to put it in really simple terms. Now, whether that causes changes like for, for depression, whether that causes changes in serotonin or other chemicals. I don't know the evidence behind that. I suspect there is, but whether that's caused by the stimulation, I'm not sure. I think it might be caused by other subsequent factors that follow on from that. Um, but yeah, certainly in motor areas of the brain, it's a, what we call a synaptic plasticity change that we're, we're really interested in. It's increasing the activity to increase the neural output from that area. That's very fascinating. Well, yeah. I wonder if, um, I'm not sure if you guys have done studies where you know, obviously you're targeting right now individuals that have like certain mental health issues, strokes, like actual, yep. you know, people that actually need this. But what about someone that wants to be quote unquote smarter, wants to, uh, you know, uh, not have to take their Adderall or their, uh, you know, the Ritalins and the Adderalls and their focus pills. Um, and they just want to, you know, tap their head with this brain simulation and boom, now I can memorize everything that I want. Have you guys looked into that? Is that something that you guys are going to look into? Um, not really. I mean, I come from a, a health background, having worked with stroke patients as a therapist. So my, my interest is in that area. And there's a lot of questions that I feel like we haven't answered and that I really want to focus on. Okay. But having said that, I know that, um, you know, like online computer gaming and stuff, mm -hmm. it's, um, I don't, I don't as you can tell, I don't know a lot about that sort of thing, but I know that people, you can buy some of these brain stimulators online and they hmm. basically people play games while stimulating their brain to make them more alert and 
conscious. I know um, certain military applications as well, they've looked into that. So you, you can imagine sitting at, I mean, I'm not a military person as well, but you can imagine sitting at a computer screen flying a drone, for example, for hours on end. You need to be alert and um, able to respond to different things. Right. So they precisely just zap their brains regularly. Yeah, so, so I know, I know um, we do a little bit of partnership work with the military, but they're quite interested in brain stimulation for cognitive processing as mm, well. Interesting. I'm a memory yeah. athlete. I compete in these memory competitions. I talked, to, talked about that once with a friend of mine, uh, Brad Zupp, who's a fellow USA memory champ, uh, competitor. But um, yeah, we were kind of just, he brought it up a few years ago. I was like, no way. There's no way that people are like zapping their brains and it's helping them to memorize faster. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I wonder if any one of the memory athletes that I compete against use something like this to help them. <laughs> <laughs> a little boost on the side. <laughs> I, might, I might buy one um, if they're not too expensive to give it a try. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a researcher, I guess we're always cautious about yeah. anything like that. I mean, certainly there are some safety aspects which we should you know really flag as well so when you increase brain activity or stimulate the brain the biggest risk is probably bringing on a seizure so if someone's have a history of epilepsy or seizures we would certainly never recommend this sort of treatment for them yeah um, anyone that's got metal in the skull as well because it's an electromagnetic pulse we don't want to um, affect any metal that might be lodged in the brain as well so there are you know we need you, i think we do need to be careful about doing that but uh, i i absolutely know that these pieces of equipment are available online <laughs> for, for gaming and cognition related tasks and stuff like that. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Well, thank you so much again, uh, for, yeah. for coming on any final words, any, you know, thing that you want to, uh, tell our, our listeners or viewers right now about this study or anything that you're doing in your field? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the field of brain stimulation and, and understanding the brain, it's been around for a while, but I do think that there's going to be some exciting things coming out in the future. Um, and keep an eye out for studies like this. We talked about with understanding um, people who are obese in their brain function, and we're talking about brain plasticity. So what does that mean for you and what you do in your life? And I think we don't know at this stage whether going on a diet and getting down to a healthy way actually automatically restores your brain function or whether it's a delayed response or whether it doesn't come back at all. But we do know that healthy, being of a healthy weight is critical for a number of cardiovascular related things and probably brain function as well. So certainly, you know, it's great to see these studies come out and attract a lot of attention through podcasts and media and stuff like that. But perhaps have a think about what you do in your life and whether you apply it and whether you want to add in a little bit of physical activity to your life because it's good for your brain health. And perhaps that's better than stimulating your brain for memory as well. <laughs> Maybe just some of these basic things right. such as living a you know healthy lifestyle, good physical activity, eating well, sleeping well, um, are probably just as effective as trying to stimulate your brain or perhaps even more effective anyway. True, true. I guess uh, I don't need the, the you know brain stimulation. I should just go run and uh, increase my yeah. BDNF, the old, the old classic yeah. way of my running. Yeah, from the gym, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hordaker. I got it right <laughs> uh, for, for coming on. And thank you everyone for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, comment down below if you have any questions. Um, maybe I'll have you on again in the future uh, when your yeah. new studies and new, new papers are uh, released. And again, we, we saw a double already from the initial bio that I wrote to the one that you sent me uh, from 20 to 40. So I'm sure we'll have another 20 articles out yeah. there and studies out there. So yeah. <laughs> Have a great day, everyone, and stay safe and eat healthy. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. All, right. All right. Thanks, everyone.